Hi, this is Pastor Brian Anderson of the Bridge House Church. For this and perhaps the next broadcast, I'm going to be sharing with you one of the most exciting things that I've discovered in my Christian life. It's really a process. It's a process of how regular, ordinary Christians can multiply disciples. See, I've always known that it's God's will for His church to make disciples who make disciples. I saw that in Scripture. I see that in the Great Commission, where Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus here is commanding the eleven to go out and make disciples of all the nations, but he also commands them to teach these new converts that they make to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. And one of the things that Jesus has commanded is for us to make disciples. So disciples, making disciples, making disciples is the will of God for his church. And I've known that. The frustrating thing for me is I've not been able to figure out a simple reproducible process by which that can take place in the church today <clears throat> until just recently. Recently, I read a book called T4T. That's the letter T, the number four, and the letter T, A Discipleship Re-Revolution. T4T is short for Training for Trainers. And this book was written by Ying Kai and Steve Smith. Ying Kai has been a missionary for many years in Southeast Asia. And Steve Smith, as well, is a missionary. And these missionaries, over in other parts of the world, put together a very simple, reproducible process by which they could make disciples and train those disciples to go and make disciples. And the process just goes on and on and on. I wonder if you've ever heard of the term uh, disciple, or excuse me, a church planting movement. I had not heard about this until a few years back. Let me give you a definition of a church planting movement. It is a rapid and multiplying increase of indigenous churches planting churches within a population segment. Now, let me read that again to you. A church planting movement is a rapid and multiplying increase of indigenous churches planting churches within a population segment. Now, there are several things in that definition that are important. First of all, it's rapid. It's rapid. If just a few churches are started each year, that's not a church planting movement. A church planting movement is a movement that takes off and native homegrown churches are reproducing themselves in other churches who represent who reproduce themselves in other churches. Second, a church planting mo- movement is multiplying. And the reason it's multiplying is because indigenous churches are planting other indigenous churches. So theoretically, two churches become four and four churches become eight and eight churches become 16 and so on so there is this rapid multiplication of disciples and churches and then thirdly these churches are indigenous that means that they're native 
to that area. They're homegrown churches. This is not the idea of some missionaries from America going over to Asia or Africa and planting three or four churches in a year. This is the idea of homegrown churches over in Asia or Africa making disciples forming them into churches, and this new body of believers then goes out and makes disciples and forms those disciples into churches, and on and on and on it goes. <clears throat> so that's what a church planting movement is. And the reason I bring up this phrase, a church planting movement, is because God has used Ying Kai in one of the most explosive church planting movements that we have documented in history. Ying was a pastor in Hong Kong for several years, and he was a fairly effective evangelist. He and his wife, Grace, could lead 40 to 60 people to Christ per year, and they found that they could plant or start another church each year. Now, by anyone's standards, that's pretty doggone good. I wish I was able to lead 40 to 60 people to Christ every year and plant a new church, but that's what they were doing in Hong Kong. But when he began to reflect on that, he thought, you know, this, there's no way that at this rate we're going to be able to reach Hong Kong for Christ. The, the birth rate is so much more greater than these 40 or 60 people that I'm able to lead to Christ. And so he began to think about how they could actually reach the teeming masses and multitudes of perishing people all over Asia. He began his work in Southeast Asia in the year 2001. He started with about 30 people and he trained them. He trained them to go and win people to Christ, teach them to obey everything Jesus commanded, and then go do that with other lost people. And so each generation of succeeding disciples is trained to go and win the lost and teach them to obey everything Jesus commanded. So he started this movement in 2001 Ten years later, by the year 2011, 150,000 new churches had been planted and 1.7 million baptisms had taken place. Now, of course, Ying didn't win all of these people to Christ himself. Uh, he trained people to win the lost and trained them to obey everything Jesus commanded, which meant going out and winning the lost and training to obey everything Jesus commanded. So he was just purposely training up believers to do what Jesus called us to do. And you might think, hey, Brian, these numbers sound like exaggerations. How could, in 10 years, a movement grow from 30 to 1.7 million baptisms? Well, it may seem like an exaggeration, but I can assure you that it's one of the most carefully documented church planning movements one of the fastest growing ones in history. It's been described as sort of a super church planting movement. It's become so large that it's virtually impossible to track all that's going on. It's clear that an entire Asian region has been saturated with the gospel as the kingdom of God has moved in. And the ripple effects are even now touching people groups in other countries and other continents. So Ying called this process T for T. And that's really what I want to share with you for this broadcast. And if it goes too long, the next broadcast. 
I want to share with you the fruit of what I've learned. And I've begun to implement this disciple multiplication process in my own life. I've been teaching it to the people in our house church. We've been going out seeking to bring the lost to Christ. And it's been tremendously exciting. So it's my hope that what I have to share with you today might resonate with some of you who are listening. And if it does, I'd like you to contact us. Just give us a call at 916-304-3014 and we can talk further and maybe get you some hands-on training so that you can begin to apply this disciple multiplication training in your own life, perhaps in your own church. But my goal this morning is just to put a few simple tools in your hands so that you can start obeying the Great Commission. I completely realize that the things I'm going to be speaking to you about are best learned hands-on. They're best learned in a training session where you can ask questions, where you can see exactly what the trainer is doing as he writes up on a whiteboard. Um, so yeah, it's, it's best in a one-on-one -on -one or group setting, a, a training session. So I realize that trying to communicate this over the radio may not be able to be the best avenue to help people grow in these simple tools, but I think it can be an effective one. And if the Lord uses what I have to share with you today, if it stirs something within your heart, then please get a hold of us and we can help you to get better trained and maybe even take this process back to people you know and train them yourself. Now, let's begin with the Great Commission text that we read earlier. <clears throat> the Great Commission text, Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, if you can remember one, two, three, you can remember the content of the Great Commission. Because the Great Commission comes with one command, two assurances, and three tasks. Let's break that down. First of all, one command. You might think that Jesus is commanding in verse 19 to go, but that's really a misnomer because that word go in the original is going. It's a participle, just like baptizing and teaching. The main command in the Great Commission is smack dab in verse, in the middle of verse 19. It's make disciples of all the nations. That's the one command Jesus is communicating in the Great Commission. Make disciples of all the nations. But it comes with two different assurances. The first one is in verse 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. So we have here the authority of Jesus Christ to make disciples. He's commanded us to do that. And he's commanded us to do that with all the authority of heaven and earth. The second assurance is in verse 20. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Here we have the accompaniment of Christ to make disciples. First, the authority of Christ to make disciples. Secondly, the accompaniment of Christ as we make disciples. So Jesus, with all authority, is charging us to go out and make these disciples. And he says, as you do that, know this, 
I'm going to be with you. And I'm not just going to be with you 11 there in the first century. I'm going to be with all of you throughout every century until that day when I return, the very end of the age. So there's one command, make disciples of all the nations, two assurances, the authority of Christ and the accompaniment of Christ, and there are three tasks. These tasks are the participles that I was mentioning earlier. They end in I-N-G. There are three of them, going, baptizing, and teaching. So these three tasks are how we obey that one command. How do you make disciples? Well, it's by going, baptizing, and teaching. So there we have it. One, two, three. One command, two assurances, three tasks. Secondly, I want you to notice that this is a command, not an option. <clears throat> when Jesus says, make disciples of all the nations, he's, he's not saying if you uh, don't mind it and have a little spare time and uh, can sort of muster it up within you, well, then go ahead and do this. But if not, it's okay. Just skip it. No, this is a command. When he says, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth, he was telling his disciples that he held the highest authority in the universe. <laughs> Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And because he is, he's commanded his church to make disciples. And if we ignore or neglect that command, really we're committing high treason against the King of the universe. Remember in Luke 6.46, Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I say? It's a very good question that we all need to think about. So this is a command, not an option. Thirdly, I want you to notice that Jesus said, Go, not come. He said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. I have been a Christian now for 36 years. And I've been a member of many different churches over that span of time. And I would, I would say that every church that I've been a part of has had the philosophy that we're trying to invite lost people to come to the church or to the Christian concert or the Christian film or the outreach event that we're doing. We're telling lost people to come. But I notice here in the Great Commission that Jesus is telling his disciples to go. Jesus didn't tell us to advertise our church on a website or a sandwich board and then wait for lost people to show up. He told us to go get the people, go get the lost people. And so, you know what? We need to be willing to get out of our comfort zone and go to people who are far from God with the only message that can save them. It is the only hope for perishing multitudes around the world. I've recently discovered that Sacramento is one of the least church cities in America. There are about one and a half million people in Sacramento County. There's another statistic I learned. 60% of people that you talk to will not come to church if you invite them. That's over half. 60% of all the people that you might run into, if you were to invite them to church, have already decided that they're just not going to come. Now, 40% might accept an invitation. 60% will not. But listen to this now. 
of that 60% of people that will not come to church if you invite them, 61% of them will study the Bible with a friend if they were asked. So over half of the people in Sacramento County will not come to a church if you invite them to come. But more than half of those that would not come to a church would be willing to sit down and study the Bible with a friend if that friend asked them to do that. So let's make this very practical. In Sacramento County, we have one and a half million people. 60% of the people in Sacramento County would equal 900,000 people. So 900,000 people in Sacramento County would never darken the doors of any church. But of that 900,000 people, 549,000 of them would be willing to study the Bible with a friend if they were asked to. <clears throat> now, here's the thing that really grips me. If only 40% of all people would ever attend church, what about those other 60%? Who's going to reach them? Is anybody going to be going after them? If our churches are not going to be able to reach them because we have this attractional model where we're inviting them to come, who's going to reach the other 60%? My friends, we've got to go. We've got to go after that other 60%. So we are commanded. This isn't an option. We are to go, not to come. And then another thing I noticed from the Great Commission is that we are to make disciples, not church attenders. We must not satisfy ourselves with simply making converts who simply attend church meetings. Jesus commanded much more from his disciples. Christ wants true disciples. And what is a true disciple? Well, according to the Great Commission, a true disciple is someone who obeys his master. And the command of the master in the Great Commission is to witness to others, bring people to faith, baptize them, and then teach them to obey everything that he commanded. So every disciple must be a disciple maker. Now, there's another thing in the Great Commission I want you to see, and that's this. Jesus said, all, not some. Jesus in Mark 16, 15 says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation, every creature. Now, if you're like me, you typically prejudge the people that you share the gospel with. Because we look at some big, strong, muscular guy with tattoos all over the place, and we think, I don't think I'm going to share the gospel with him. We prejudge. We prejudge who we think is going to accept the gospel and who will reject it. But Jesus commanded us to go to everyone. Folks, we can't predict whom God is going to save. God is a great and sovereign Lord who has appointed multitudes to everlasting life and it's our job just to go and get those people but we can't tell by looking at the outside so many times i've looked at somebody and thought they're never going to listen to what i have to say but just out of obedience i'll start talking to them about christ and i'm surprised that they listen and they eagerly uh, pay attention to the gospel that i share with them here's another aspect of the great commission we need to think about 
It's obedience, not just more information. Did you notice what Jesus says in verse 20? Teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. Obey. Now, here in America, I told you that I've been a Christian 36 years. Uh, during those 36 years, I have discovered that people think that simply by listening to sermons and going to Bible studies, that they're making progress in their spiritual life. They think by acquiring more Bible information, they are maturing spiritually. But that's a huge mistake. It's a huge mistake because we mature spiritually, not simply by knowing more Bible, although that is important, but by applying and obeying the scripture that we learn. Oh, never make the mistake of thinking that you're becoming spiritually mature simply because you're listening to sermons and attending Bible studies. Rather, you should judge your spiritual maturity by your level of obedience to Jesus Christ and His character being formed in your life. So the things that we should notice about the Great Commission is that it's a command, not an option. He told us to go, not to come. He said, make disciples, not church attenders. He said, preach to all, not some. And he wants obedience, not just more information. So T for T, or this disciple multiplication training, is obedience-based. It's not knowledge-based. Yes, we will have to teach information, but information only for the sake of obedience. We want obedient, reproducing disciples. That's the goal. Now, another key of this disciple multiplication training is a piece we call the man of peace. And it comes from Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends the 70 disciples out to every town and village that he himself is going to come to later. Let me just read this to you from Luke 10, verses 1 through 9. <clears throat> now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you. And heal those in it who are sick and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, notice a few things from this passage. Jesus is sending his 70 disciples out on a short-term mission. He was preparing them for the time when he would be gone, when he ascended back to heaven. And it was up to the 11 apostles and some other disciples among them to go out and obey the Great Commission. And so Jesus is preparing them, and he gives them specific instructions. He tells them to pray that the Lord would send out laborers into his harvest. Secondly, he told them not to take any extra clothes or money or provisions. 
Instead, they were supposed to trust God to provide everything that they needed. <clears throat> and notice that as they went, they were to be looking for a man of peace. That's what the New American Standard Bible calls it in verse 6. If a man of peace is there, it says. Some versions say a person of peace or a house of peace. This man of peace is someone that God has especially prepared to receive his messenger when he comes and to receive the message that the messenger gives. This man of peace brings Christ's messenger into his home. He lets him stay there. He provides food and lodging. And then he becomes a catalyst to reaching his own community. And you see persons of peace in the Bible. Do you remember the woman at the well in John chapter 4? Well, Jesus reaches out to this woman at the well, and then she goes to all the people of Samaria, and she begins telling them, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. This couldn't be the Christ, could it? And multitudes of people came from Samaria to Jesus, and many came to believe in him because of the witness of this, this woman that Jesus had won. We also find a person of peace in a very unlikely place. <laughs> this was the Gadarene demoniac, the man who is possessed by a legion of demons. Well, Jesus delivers him. The man next finds himself clothed and in his right mind sitting at the feet of Jesus, and he longs to go with Jesus when Jesus leaves, but Jesus says, no, I don't want you to come with me. I want you to go back to your own town. I want you to go back to Decapolis, which means 10 cities. I want you to go back there and be my witness and tell everybody what great things the Lord has done for you. And so Jesus won the demoniac. The demoniac then goes back to his own people who, who knew who he was before, knew that he was a crazy wild man that nobody could subdue. And he goes back to his own people and he shares, hey, Jesus Christ is the one who set me free from all those demons that were tormenting me. We also find persons of peace in the book of Acts, like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, or Lydia and the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. In every case, the person of peace is first brought to Christ, and then they use their influence to bring other people in their oikos, which simply means household, to faith. So Lydia is baptized with her entire oikos, her whole household. The Philippian jailer and his whole household come to Christ. Cornelius and his entire household come to Christ. So we find this principle of the man of peace or the house of peace. Now, in order for me to help you understand this whole process, I need to describe the idea of the four fields. <clears throat> Think about a big square divided up into four quadrants. These four quadrants represent different uh, tasks that we are involved in as we seek to obey the Great Commission. The first quadrant is upper left, and that's the quadrant that is associated with going. The second quadrant is upper right, and that's the quadrant that is associated with gospeling, or you might say baptizing. The third quadrant 
is lower right. And that's the quadrant that is associated with teaching. And then the fourth quadrant is bottom left. And that's the quadrant that is associated with church formation. Now, the first three fields, and th think about this from upper left to upper right to bottom right to bottom left as going from one task in the Great Commission to the next task to the next task to the next task. Okay, let's talk about those four fields. First of all, field one. In field one, we're going. In field two, we're gospeling. In field three, we are growing, growing these disciples. In field four, we are gathering. We're gathering the disciples into bundles and forming churches. So let's talk about field one for a minute. In this field, the very first field, we are entering a new area that has no seed. We don't know of any gospel witness going on, so we enter this new area. It could be an apartment complex or a subdivision, some area where you want to bring the gospel to bear upon that community. And we intentionally go there wanting to speak to lost people to share the gospel with them. This lost person could be your next-door neighbor, or he could be strangers that you've never met. The important thing is that we intentionally decide to go. Now, who do we go to? Well, one of the things that you should do very early on is make up what we call a name list. And it's very simple. Get out of yourself a, a piece of paper and a pen and start writing down the names of every person that you know that's far from God. And then start praying over that list of people and asking the Lord who you should share with first. Circle five of the names and then intentionally make appointments or make plans to meet with those people, maybe over lunch or for coffee or just to walk to your neighbor's home and knock on the door. But make uh, plans to go to these people that are on your name list and share your story of what God has done in your life. And then also share Jesus story or the gospel. <clears throat> so this means that we are intentional about sowing the gospel seed. We enter an area. That's field one. And as we enter in field two, we start to sow the gospel seed by talking to lost people about Jesus Christ and what he's done in order to provide salvation for us. Now, what are, what are we doing in field one? Well, in field one, our chief objective is to find a man of peace or a woman of peace. That's what we're trying to do. We're not trying to save every person that we meet in field one. Uh, we know ahead of time that not every person is going to receive the gospel. God has chosen, he's ordained to save many people in this world, and it's our objective to seek them out. So we're looking for a person of peace because that person could very well become the key to reaching that whole community that you're working among. So that's what we're doing. And as we go to these, these people in field one, we're sharing our testimony, our story. We're also sharing the gospel. And as we do that, we're going to receive one of three different responses. 
we're going to receive a red light or a yellow light or a green light. A yellow light, well, no, let's go back to the red light. A red light means that person is not interested and they reject any kind of effort that you make to share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. So if you talk to somebody and try to share with them about Christ and you get a red light, then you simply move on because they're not a person of peace. They're not the one that you're looking for. So you just move on to the next person or the next home and you talk to somebody else. But perhaps they are a yellow light. A yellow light means that they're not ready to make a commitment of their life to Christ yet, but they're interested enough to hear more. They would like to learn more about the things that you're sharing with them. So if they're a yellow light, you simply ask them if you can come back and share more stories with them of how people far from God can get near to God. But perhaps it's not a, a red or a yellow light. Perhaps this person is a green light. God has been working in their heart, and when you show up, they're ready to receive Jesus Christ and surrender their life to Him as Lord and Savior. So if they're a green light, what you would do then is move over to field three where you start to train them to obey everything Jesus commanded. So that's kind of an overview. Field one, you're entering a new region, looking for a person of peace. As you go, you start to share with them your story and Jesus' story. You're going to get three different responses, red, yellow, or green. Red, you move on. Yellow, you come back to share more with them. Green, you start to teach them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. Now let's back up and let's go back to field two, because I think I need to explain a little bit more of what it means to share your story and Jesus' story. First of all, your story. That's very simple. If you're a Christian, you have a story. And it's comprised of three parts. What your life was like before you came to Christ. That's the first part. Then, how you came to Christ. That's the second part. And then thirdly, what your life is like now that you've come to Christ. There's the third aspect. So what your life, life was like before how you came to Christ, and what your life is like now. And you need to be able to uh, share that simple story with someone in two minutes or less. And so what I would encourage you to do is get another piece of paper and a pen and write out your story with those three parts, making sure it's not more than one page so that you can share that simply with other people in one or two minutes. So that's your story. Secondly, you need to be able to share Jesus' story. You need to be able to share the gospel with people. And what I really appreciate about t for t is that they have sought to make this discipleship process as simple and reproducible as possible. And so whatever gospel presentation you decide to share with somebody Make sure that it's simple enough that the person you lead to Christ would be able to learn it fairly quickly and use that same presentation to share with somebody else. So, what kind of gospel presentation are we talking about? Well, let me just share with you what it might look like in our context. We have been going out to people that we don't know yet. To strangers, 
I quickly learned that after I had written my name list, I discovered I, I know very few people that are far from God. I just don't have very many friendships or relationships with lost people. So if I'm going to obey the Great Commission, I have to go and talk to people that I don't know yet. So these would be strangers. So what we have done is we've simply gone to areas like a, oh, a subdivision of a, a particular neighborhood or a, an apartment complex, and we'll just walk around that neighborhood or apartment complex praying, asking God to open up the hearts of the people in that place, asking God to open up the heavens and rain down his blessing, asking God to open up the hands of the people that going, go there so that they may show the love of Christ. So we're just praying over that area. And then after we've done that, we'll go and we'll knock on a door. And when the person comes to the door, we'll just introduce ourselves and tell them we're out prayer walking, that we would like to bless the people of our community. And we're looking for people who have needs that we can pray for. And we'll ask them, or do you have any particular needs that you would like God to answer? Or in other words, if God could do a miracle in your life, what would it be? And we just wait for a few minutes and listen. And some people will say, no, nah, I'm good. No needs in, in my life right now. But others will say, yeah, I, I, I do have a need. And we've had all kinds of different needs shared with us. So when somebody shares a need, maybe it's the need of wanting to be able to have another child, or they're having problems in their marriage, um, or health issues, whatever that might be, we simply ask them, would, I, would it be okay if I take just a moment right now and pray for you? And so then we'll pray a short prayer in the name of Jesus, asking him to, to do the request that has been asked. And when we're done, I'll simply look at the person there on the doorstep and said, I'm just curious, would you say that you're near or far from God right now? And we've received all kinds of answers. Usually people say, well, I guess I'm kind of in the middle. Some people say, I'm, I'm pretty far from God. And others will say, well, I'm near to God. No matter what their response is, I just ask them, would it be okay if I took just a minute, drew out a little picture to show you how someone who's far from God can get near to God, or someone who's near to God can get nearer to God? And so once I've done that, I take out a little pad of paper and I use it to draw the bridge illustration. Now, you may have seen this illustration before, but if you haven't, I simply draw a stick figure and that represents people. And then I write the word God. So the stick figure is on the left side of the page. The word God is on the right side of the page. And I say originally, God and man were close together. They were in fellowship. Man was near to God. But something early on came in to disrupt that fellowship. And when I say that, I, I draw a chasm between the man and God. I, I show the two cliffs and that man is on one side and God is on the other and they're separated by this large chasm. And I explained to them, this chasm is like the size of the Grand Canyon. It's absolutely impossible that the man is going to be able to jump across this chasm and get to God. He's cut off. 
And if he ever is to be able to be near to God, it's because God is going to be, God's going to take the initiative and come and restore fellowship with him. And then I tell them, I, I just want to share one verse out of the Bible with you. It's Romans 6.23. And that verse goes like this. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then underneath that stick figure of the man, I'll write three words. Wages, sin, and death. And underneath the word God on the right side, I'll write three words. Gift, God, and eternal life. And I'll show them that the words on the left are opposites of the words on the right. Wages is contrasted to gift. Sin is contrasted to God. And death is contrasted to eternal life. And I'll just ask some simple questions like, what's the difference between wages and a gift? You know, what's the difference? How would you describe the difference? And they'll say, well, wages are what you work for. And a gift is something that's just given to you freely. And I'll say, exactly. Now, if we work at sin, in other words, if we commit sin, what's the paycheck that God is going to give us at the end of our life? And then I'll point over to the left side where it says the wages of sin is death. And they'll say, well, the paycheck God's going to give is death. And I say, you're right. Well, what is the death that he's talking about there? Look over to the right side. It's contrasted with eternal life. So what kind of death must we be talking about here? Well, the answer, of course, is eternal death. And then I'll say, do you know what word the Bible calls eternal death? And most of them know that that word is hell. And so I'll write hell at the bottom of that gorge or that ravine. And I'll say, hell is the place where God pours out his wrath upon sin forever. So what this verse is teaching us is that all of us, because we've all sinned, all of us have earned everlasting death or hell. We've all done that. We've all earned it. And then I might take a minute to say, do you know what it means when the Bible talks about sin? It says here, the wages of sin is death. What would you say sin is? And they'll give various answers like, well, maybe it's something bad, something that you shouldn't do. And so I'll say, yeah, that's part of it. Sin is really disobedience to God. It's not doing what God wants you to do, or it's doing what God doesn't want you to do. So let's go from the left side where we have some really bad news. Let's take ourselves over to the right side of the page and let's look at some good news now for a minute. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. So I'll ask them, does a person have to work or strive or earn eternal life according to the Bible? And of course, the answer is no. It's a gift. The free gift of God is eternal life. And then I'll ask them, well, if death is talking about hell, what is eternal life talking about? And they'll say, well, it must be talking about heaven. And they'll say, you're absolutely right. Let's look at these two sides. All of us have worked for and earned everlasting death or hell. But God is willing to give us 
heaven, not as something we work for or earn or deserve, but something that comes to us as a gift, a free gift. And then I'll ask them, do you know how God was able to make that offer of eternal life? Do you know what had to happen for that to become a reality? And if, if they don't understand that, I'll say the answer is in the rest of this little verse. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And I'll say we've got to put Jesus into this picture because he's in this Bible verse. So then I will take my pen and I will draw a cross, making it bridge the gap between the man on the left side and God on the right side. And I will write the name Jesus in that cross. And I'll tell you, Jesus Christ and what he did when he died on the cross is the answer to our sin problem. He is the one that bridges the gap between us and God. And I'll say to them, do you know why Jesus is the only one who can be the bridge between man and God? And then I'll explain it to them. It's because Jesus is both God, and I'll point my pen over to the word God on the right, and he's also man, and I'll point my pen over to the word, or to the stick figure of the man on the left. He's both God and man in one person. Because he's God, he can lay his hand upon God. Because he's man, he can lay his hand upon us, and he can draw us together. He's the mediator, or the go-between, that can reconcile sinful men with a holy God. And then I'll just tell them very simply and quickly, Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, the life that none of us ever lived. And at the end of his life, he took our sin upon himself. And at that point, I'll circle the word sin on the left side of the page and draw an arrow to the cross. And I'll say, Jesus bore our sins on the cross. Then I'll circle the word hell at the bottom of the ravine and, ravine and draw an arrow up to the cross. And I'll say, Jesus took our hell. He took the wrath of God meant for us and our sins, and he bore that upon the cross. And because he's done that and then rose from the dead three days later, Jesus Christ is able to save you from sin and its penalty. And then I'll say, but you know, the gift of eternal life, though it is offered and though it's provided, it can't be received by anybody until they've done a couple of things. At the top right-hand side of that piece of paper, I'll write Mark 1.15, and then I'll draw an arrow from the stick figure of the man across the bridge to God, and I'll write on top of that arrow two words, repent and believe. And I'll say, Jesus said in Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel. And I'll say, do you understand what it means to repent? And usually they have some kind of an an understanding of that. And what I'll do there is I'll say to repent is like this. If you have been ignoring God and just doing your own thing, you've really been walking away from God. And I'll show them on the piece of paper, uh, the stick figure, walking away from the presence of God. To repent is to turn around and go in a new direction and start walking toward God. It's to leave your old life of sin and to begin going after God. That's what it is to repent. And then I'll say, do you understand really what it means to believe in the gospel? 
Well, the word believe is just another word for trust. And I'll ask them, so if I told you that I really think I'm going to heaven, and the reason I think I'm going to heaven is because I'm such a good person. If I told that to you, who would you say I'm trusting in? Now, sometimes they'll come back and say, well, you're trusting in God. No, no, think again. If I told you that the reason I'm going to heaven is because I'm such a good person, who am I trusting in? And then they get it. Oh, you're trusting in yourself. You're trusting in the fact that you think that you're good enough to go to heaven. And I'll say, you're exactly right. I'm trusting in myself. The Bible says I must trust in Jesus Christ to be saved. So then I'll take the word believe, I'll circle it, and draw an arrow to the cross and show them that to believe means I must transfer my trust from myself to Jesus Christ and what he's done at the cross by bearing my sin. And then I'll tell them, if you are willing to repent of sin and put your trust in Jesus Christ, God will save you. And then I'll say two questions. Number one, does this make sense to you? And of course it does. They all say yes, because it, it makes sense. It's, it's so clear and simple that anyone can understand it and anyone can reproduce it. And then I'll say, is there any reason why you would not want to repent and believe in order that you might receive the gift of eternal life? So there it's putting a little bit of heat on the situation. They're going to have to really think about, yeah, do I really have a reason why I wouldn't want to do that? And at this point, you're finding out where they are. Are they a red light, yellow light, or green light? <clears throat> now, if they say no, there's no reason why I wouldn't want to do that. You know, I, I've been waiting for someone to share this with me. I know that I'm a sinner. I want to be forgiven. I'm ready to surrender my life to Jesus Christ as my Lord, and I'm ready to follow him. What do I do? Well, at that point, I would start talking to them about uh, baptism. Baptism is the way that we, it's the initiation right into God's kingdom. And so I would, if they had time, I would talk to them right then about baptism. If they didn't, I'd come back at a date that we prearranged and do a little Bible study on the idea of baptism. And then if they, if I could tell that God truly was working in their heart and they did repent and believe, then I would uh, plan a baptism. And begin to train that person to obey Jesus Christ. If the person said, no, I'm not ready to surrender my life to Christ, but I am kind of interested, I would ask him if I could come back and share another story with them. And uh, we had set a date and a time. I'd get their phone number in case I couldn't make it back for whatever reason. And then I'd come back and share stories of hope from the scripture until that time when they were ready to make a decision, were ready to commit their life to Jesus Christ. So that's kind of the process that we go through when we go up prayer walking, knocking on doors. We ask the miracle question. We ask them if they're near or far from God. We ask if we can take just a couple of minutes and draw a picture to illustrate how someone far from God can get near to God. We show the bridge illustration, and then we ask them, can we come back and tell you another story or start a Bible study in your home? And this is extremely important, this idea of discovery Bible studies, because if you're able to come back into their home, 
not yours, but theirs, because it needs to be on their turf where they're comfortable. And when they can invite their household or their friends over, um, if you're able to start a study in their home, you're going to be able to develop a relationship with them week after week, develop a friendship. They're going to be exposed to the Word of God over a prolonged period of time. And this has proven to be extremely effective in leading people to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. So let's say you had a yellow light. The person says, I'm not ready to give my life to Christ, but I would be willing for you to come back and share more with me. And so we say, great, uh, let's come back next Saturday morning at 11 a.m. And by the way, do you have anybody else you think would be interested in hearing one of these stories? Family members, friends, people from work, just invite them all over. Kind of like Cornelius in his household waiting for Peter when he came. And when you come back, when we come back, what we do is we tell these various stories of hope. One of the first ones we like to share is the story from Luke 7, 36 to 50 about the sinful woman who was so convicted of her sin that she came to Jesus who was at a luncheon with some religious people and she wept at his feet and then took her hair to dry his feet and took some costly perfume and poured it all over his feet and kissed him. And you know the story. Well, we tell that story. We've learned that many people are not comfortable reading. Uh, and so learn the story by heart so you can share it. And then we just ask them simple questions. One of the questions we ask them is, uh, what does that story teach us about God or Jesus? And so we get people to answer. And you'll get all kinds of great answers. What does it teach about God or Jesus? Secondly, what does it teach about people? And you just wait and let them think and come up with their answers about what they think that story teaches about people. And that particular story, what does it teach us about the sinful woman? What does it teach us about Simon the Pharisee? And then a third question is, is there a command to obey or an example for us to follow from this story? And so that gives us time to think and reflect on any commands or examples. And then a fourth question, what will you do this week to obey what you have learned? That's a really great question. Because it starts to help this person, even before they become a Christian, learn that to follow Jesus means that they're going to have to become obedient to Jesus as their master. So what will you do this week to obey what you've learned? And then a, another question is, who will you share the story with this week? Who will you share with? And so we would simply start going through these stories of hope. We'd get to know the people that are coming. We would pray for them. Um, each week when we come back, we would start off by asking how it went last week. So who did you share with last week? Who'd you share the story with? How did it go obeying the things that you said you needed to obey? How did that go? So we start off with some accountability. Um, we go into the next story of hope, which might be the Pharisee and the tax collector from Luke 18, or it might be the rich young ruler, or it might be um, the thief on the cross or doubting Thomas or the parable. 
of the, the um, prodigal son. So you choose a story that you believe would have gospel ramifications and you would tell the story and you might ask them to see if they could retell that story back to you. And as they do so, then you'd ask anybody else that's there, okay, that was great. Uh, was there anything that they forgot or anything that we need to add? Or was there anything that was put in the story that wasn't really there? And so we're all thinking through that new story. And then we go through those simple questions again. What does it teach about God or Jesus? What does it teach about us? Is there a command to obey? Is there an example to follow? What are you going to do this week to obey what you've learned? And who are you going to share that story with this week? So that's field two. We're sharing the gospel. We're sharing stories of hope. Eventually, some of those people that you're sharing with are going to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that brings us to field three. Field three is the growing field. This is where you help these brand new Christians to grow. And we have come up with seven simple, reproducible Bible studies called the Seven Commands of Christ. Each of these Bible studies is only one page long. It's simply looking up scripture and answering questions about it. And here are the seven different commands of Jesus Christ that we've identified. Number one, baptism. Number two, the word of God. Number three, prayer. Number four, making disciples. Number five, love. That's loving God and people. Six, giving. And seven, the Lord's Supper. And so we'll just take them through one of these Bible studies, asking them to look up the answers in their own Bible, coming to their own conclusions, discovering for themselves as the Holy Spirit opens up the word to them. And so as we do that, very early on in the process of teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded, very early on, within the first week of their conversion, we're teaching them to do the very same thing that we did. We're teaching them to make their name list of all the people they know that are far from God. We're teaching them how to tell their story. We're teaching them a very simple gospel presentation that they can go out and share with people that they know. And then we're encouraging them to go to people on their name list and share their story and Jesus' story. In other words, we're training them to do exactly what we did with them. And we're training them so that when they lead someone to Christ, they'll train that person to do what we trained them to do. And on and on the process goes. In 2 Timothy 2.2, the Bible says, And the things you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So in that one verse, you've got four generations. Paul then Timothy, then faithful men, and then others. And that's what we're seeking to do in disciple replication. We're making a disciple and training them to make a disciple and training that person to make a disciple, and on and on the process goes. So let's say that we've led a person to Christ, we've baptized them, we have begun teaching them to obey the commands of Jesus. What else would we want to do with that disciple? Well, we would want to bring them along with us as we go prayer walking. As we go into a community, an apartment complex, or a neighborhood, bring them along with us to be an observer. And we follow 
the MAWL method, M-A-W-L, model, assist, watch, and leave. Model, assist, watch, leave. So first of all, we take them along with us and we model what we're doing. They watch us as we share the gospel or our story with people right on their doorstep. And then after they've watched us for a while, we ask them if they'd like to help us in the process by taking a portion. Maybe we ask um, if they would like to share the gospel presentation, or if they would like to share their story as we talk to this person. So they assist us. They do a portion of, of that particular engagement with a lost person. Eventually, all we do is watch because they've seen us do it enough and they become proficient enough that they go along with us and we're watching now as they are the ones who are introducing themselves at the door, asking if there's anything that we can pray about, sharing the gospel and the bridge illustration, and then asking if we can come back and do a Bible study with them in their home. And eventually, after we've watched them, and we can see that they're proficient, they're confident, and they're competent in this whole process, then we leave, because they're no longer needing us. They're able now to go to one of the disciples that they have made and train them to do the same thing. So the whole objective is to make disciples who make disciples. Folks, we can't be content with simply bringing new people to faith. We've got to strive to bring people to faith and then train them to bring others to faith and disciple those new believers. So the question I want to ask you is this. Will you obey Jesus Christ and do your part in completing the Great Commission? It's going to mean going, looking for a man of peace, it's going to mean gospeling, which means sharing your story and Jesus' story with others. It's going to mean starting discovery Bible studies in the homes of people who are yellow lights or green lights. It's going to mean baptizing new believers. And it's going to mean teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. So my question again, will you begin to obey Jesus Christ and obey Him by fulfilling the Great Commission? You know, I truly cannot think of a greater task for anyone to give themselves to in this life. I can't. There is nothing greater than that. If you have been stirred to want to walk this road with us, if, if you want to be out there in the harvest fields, seeing people come to Christ and be part of fulfilling the Great Commission, but you'd like more training or you'd like more information, just call us. Call us at 916-304-3014. 916-304-3014. Or you can go to our website at www.thebridgeonline.net and then click on Gatherings and then click on T for T. And you will notice there a link that will take you to a bunch of different training materials that I've developed. And you can use those training materials or you can get in touch with us and we can help you to develop your own spiritual life and implement the things that you're learning. But may God bless you as you seek to be obedient to Jesus Christ.